You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Um, Exodus 20 is where we're going to be tonight, and I'm going to give you a simple thought this evening, not, uh, not too long or extensive this evening, but um, we're in our worship series tonight, and um, it's great to have um, Brother Samuel's uh, mom, Lisa, and his sister Emily here tonight. Uh, grateful they're here, they drove up just to hear this message, and I'm really grateful for that. And so, uh, you know, just looking, come up to visit for a few days, and grateful they're here this evening. And, uh, you know, they're, uh, I meant to say this, it was on my list, but um, obviously I didn't bring that in here with me. Uh, but Brother Hardy, Dave Hardy, Brother Samuel's um, Papa, as he calls him, uh, he's preached here before. We're familiar with Brother Brother Hardy and love him here. He's had some health issues this week, and uh, and so if you could keep him in prayer, he's been, he was in Arizona and started having some some heart issues, and they had to go in and put a stent in uh, today. And I think they they may have to do. I don't know the do two or just the one procedure. Okay, just the one procedure, and uh, and so a little bit you know a little bit scary for the family, obviously, and. And because we know him and we're, we love the Hardys, we want to make sure we pray for Brother Dave Hardy and keep him in prayer. And uh, so that leads then, though, into our series. Been uh, on a series or in a series on worship, and uh, and a lot of the material we've used to kind of come to um, some of these thoughts was a book written by Brother Dave Hardy um, in um, Worship in the Ear of God. And so we'll be continuing that tonight. Uh, last week we looked at. Um, God being the object of our worship. And now it's easy to substitute the place of worship with the person of worship. Uh, if you see somebody at the gas station, they're dressed up, you ask where they're going, they will likely say, I'm going to church. And they're thinking about the place. That's uh, very similar to the woman at the well when she comes to Jesus or Jesus comes to her. Uh, one of the two really was a divine appointment, Jesus seeking her. And she was focused on the place. She was asking, are we to worship in our Mount, Mount Gerizim, or do we worship where the Jews worship in Jerusalem? Which is the right place? And Jesus says, ye worship no, ye know not what. Basically, the idea is it's not about the place, it's about the who. It's about the person. It's about who you are going to worship. And we do need to be in the habit. I know when you say, I'm going to church, that's a very accepted thing to say. But what we ought to be meaning is we are going to meet with the Lord. We are going to meet with the God of heaven. It's not about a place. It is about a person. And this week, I'd like to look at a principle here in Exodus 20 um, and ponder this question. Where are the worshiping witnesses? Where are the worshiping witnesses? Who can we look to as someone who's providing an example of what it means to worship? And I think that we often may forget or not realize that how we worship or our method of worship can be a witness in a very important way. And I want to look at that tonight. Exodus chapter 20, if you've got your place, let's go ahead and stand and we'll read the first seven verses here. Exodus chapter 20, and as we read these verses, I want you to take note of the fact that Moses, God is giving these Ten Commandments to Moses, and as he gives them to Moses, I want you to understand what's on the mind of the Lord, what's on God's mind here is worship. 
That's how he starts. He starts with the idea of who you're worshiping. Look at verse 1. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You should worship me alone, is what he's saying. Verse 4, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Look what he says in verse 5. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them. What have we been talking about in worship as the biblical definition of worship What is, with one word, a physical word, what's the one word, the most biblical definition of worship? Bow. Thou shalt, he says, here's who you ought to worship. Here's who you ought to bow down before. I am the Lord thy God. That's who you ought to. Here's who you ought not bow down before. He says, thou shalt not make into thee any graven image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me. And keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. And so the idea tonight again is this. Where are the worshiping witnesses? You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his word tonight. Uh, Most of us, as I mentioned, these first few verses of the Ten Commandments are about worship, and and I finished reading in verse 7 for a specific reason. Most of us have thought of those verses, especially verse 7, in one way most of our lives. And if, if if you were to sum up verse 7, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless, that taketh his name in vain. And, and what would you then, what is the common interpretation for that commandment? It, you are not supposed to what? What is it? Swear specifically how? Using God's name in a way that is inappropriate to God. That's the idea that many of us would approach that verse with. And we've heard that verse our whole lives as being, you shouldn't say God's name in a way that, did, that would dishonor God, or in a way that wouldn't please God, or in a way that would demean or diminish who God is. And we would all say a hearty amen to that. Uh, no pun intended. We've got hearties here tonight. Um, a hearty amen. Um, and yet, if you think about the context of these first seven verses, we've already established that God is thinking about worship as he gives these. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God. The, I am the Lord. He's the one. I am the one you ought to worship. Thou shalt not worship or bow down, make any graven image or worship uh, any, anything else except for God. And then as he comes then um, to verse 7, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And, and if you think about the context, while it certainly can mean 
Don't speak God's name in a way that is demeaning to God. If you think of it in the broader picture, I think it means more than that, though. See, if you think of it in terms of who you bow to, then you realize that verse 7 can actually have a much larger, larger meaning than just how you speak. And I believe that this verse, the idea here, and while it includes what you say, it also, though, includes this idea of not saying that you belong to God. That you worship God and yet living a life that contradicts what you say. See, the idea of taking the name of the Lord thy God, when, the idea when you take, it means to lift up a banner. So it's the, it's the idea would be this. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God. Here's the idea. Thou shalt not raise a flag that says, I belong to the Lord. ...while worshiping something else. And yes, it could mean what you say... ...and using God's name in a derogatory derogatory way... ...but I really believe it means... ...I have a flag that says I belong to God... ...but I'm worshiping at the feet of something else. In its context, if you think about it... ...and I know this is... you know, ...I'm not trying to get you to think, well then we, you know, obviously we're allowed to use God's name in vain now. No, that's not the idea because I believe it falls under the same category. I belong to God and yet walking down the street using God's name in a less than honoring way would have the same effect. That you say you belong to God, but you worship at the feet of something else. Bowing is reserved, is something reserved for God only. To say that you worship God and bow before some other God or bow before some other um, life's idol, um, your job or your car or your house or your stuff. I mean, we could worship just about anything. Our children, our hobbies, sports, athletes, clothes. I mean, people have a lot of mixed up priorities. You can worship at the feet of a lot of things But the only one that is worthy of being bowed before is the God of heaven. So bowing should be reserved for the true king. And anyone, here's the issue that I've been dealing with for a few weeks. The idea is that in America, we don't know much about bowing to honor someone. We have not been raised, many, most of us, in a monarchy that's ruled by a king. And, and in, in this book, then Brother Hardy gives this illustration. And he says, most people back in the early 1950s did not own a television. So this is his, uh, his uh, testimony, and I can hear him even giving this story. But on one occasion, I had the opportunity to watch television at another person's home, or house. Since we did not have a television, this was quite an experience for me. The black and white picture was not all that great. Nevertheless, I was excited. The program was about the old country. And presently, a group of men dressed in robes emerged from a castle. In my mind, kings lived in castles. But in this picture, no one was wearing a crown, which I also associated with kings. So make sure you're thinking and you're envisioning this story. There's, it's the old country. It's maybe Great Britain. There's a castle. There's, these men in robes emerge from the castle, but nobody is wearing a crown. Who is the king, I wondered. 
Then a man approaching the group knelt on one knee with his head bowed before one particular man. Immediately, I knew which man was the king. Interestingly, as I think back now, I did not know who the king was by what the king did. I knew who the king was by what his subject did. And we're connecting this to Exodus 27. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The idea that God was trying to get across to his people is that people, you are, the way that you live is going to make a statement about the king that you serve. People will be able to tell who the king is based on the life that you live. And obviously there are times when kings wear their crowns and kings are dressed in royal robes and royal regal garments and no one can be in doubt at all at that point who the king is. But that's not always so. I mean, think about our king. I mean, we serve the God of heaven. He is the king of the universe. And when I think of him as the king, I think about Christmas. I think about how our king came at Christmas time. I think about a song that we used to sing in choir there in Stillwater. How should a king come? How should a king come? Even a child knows the answer, of course. In a coach of gold with a pure white horse. In the beautiful city, in the prime of the day, and the trumpets should cry, and the crowds make way, and the flags fly high in the morning sun, and the people all cheer for the sovereign one, and everyone knows that's the way that it's done. That's the way that a king should come. How should a king come? Even a commoner understands. He should come for his treasures and his houses and lands. He should dine upon summer strawberries and milk and sleep upon bedclothes of satin and silk. And high on a hill his castle should glow with the lights of the city like jewels below. And everyone knows that's the way that it's done. That's the way that a king should come. How should a king come? And then the reality sets in of how our king came. On a star-filled night in, into Bethlehem rode a weary woman and a worried man. And the only sound in the cobblestone street was the shuffle and the ring of their donkey's feet. And a king lay hid in a virgin's womb. And there were no crowds to see him come. At last in a barn in a manger of hay he came. And God incarnate lay. Think about the way we assume a king should come. He should come and announce who he is. You can tell who he is based on how he comes. But even our king didn't come that way. So who then is responsible to make sure other people know that he is the king? Because he didn't come announcing it. He didn't come proclaiming it. He didn't come dressed as a king. And people would assume that's the way he should come. And that's the way he deserved to come. But he didn't come as a king at that point. He came as a savior. And until that time, like that scene from the old country, it might then, be careful, it might be then up to the king's subjects to ensure that our king is recognized in a way that he deserves. 
Think about that. Do most people in our country acknowledge Jesus Christ as king? Do they? No. They know of him, but they don't worship or follow him. So perhaps then we should view it as more of our responsibility to let him know that he is king. Because if not us, if not his subjects, who will? Listen, our king may not have castles in our country, but he does have sanctuaries. So, and try to grasp this thought. When his subjects come together, what is the best way for us to be a witness to others that we serve the sovereign of the universe? There are many ways we could. We could sing, we could attend, we could come and be passionate. Yes, all of these things. But if somebody was simply watching our services, what physical act could we do that would most obviously express our subjection to our king? Go back to the men of the old country. How did that one man in that robe let other, or that one man who, who came before that group of people, how did, you let, had did he let others know who the king was? He bowed. And everyone at that point watching knew exactly who the king was. And if the Bible word for worship in both Hebrew and Greek calls for bowing, we ought to consider that. As a subject of the king, that is our responsibility to let others know who the king is. Kneeling points toward a sovereign. Bowing or kneeling is a witness. It testifies both to the sovereign and to the posture of the heart of the worshiper at the same time. It bows to the one being worshipped and the one doing the worshipping. And if you've ever watched a courtroom proceeding, then you know a witness is there to speak. And in the same way, worship is a witness that speaks without words. Worship says with the body what the lips may be limited in articulating. I often feel inadequate to express what I truly feel about my Savior. I mean, we, he is an incredible Savior. I mean, what he has done for us. I mean, in the lengths that he went for us, the love that he has for us, the mercy. I was even read here, and I know a lot of people will focus in Exodus 20, even the Ten Commandments. They'll focus on verse uh, verse 5, it says, For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And that, is, that means the sins of the fathers influence their children for generations. And, and that's just the way that it happens. And so people say, see, God is a cruel God, that he would allow that to happen. But don't forget, it also says in verse 6, And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. God is not just interested in punishing those that do wrong. He's a loving God and a merciful God who wants nothing more than to bless your life with great spiritual blessings. That's the kind of God that we serve. I can't even say that in a way that really does it justice. I mean, I've tried tonight, and some of you, maybe it resonates with you the way that I say it, but I can't do it, not really. See, worship, though, in an act without words, can testify and say, you are supreme. 
Worship can pronounce that you are exalted above all without you saying a word. Worship can say you are great and I am not. Worship can confess you are distinct and excellent. Worship can announce you are um, excellent and high and lofty and I am subservient to you. Worship can convey honor and it can convey majesty. It can declare you are deserving of adoration and glory and you don't have to say a word to do it. Biblical worship focuses all the attention upon the one being worshipped. When I bow or you bow, there's nothing about that act that makes it about me. There's nothing about that act that makes it about you. It is all about the one being worshipped. And true worship removes all doubt of what is being said about who is rightfully deserving of attention. Biblical worship proves its unmistakable allegiance toward the Lord alone. There's no conflict at this point when you worship. There is no conflict between what is being said as a label and what is being practiced. In other words, if you bow, if you worship, then, then what you say on Monday through Saturday, and when you wave the flag and say, I'm a Christian, on Sunday, if you worship, then you're doing nothing to contradict what you've said Monday through Saturday. It is a clear sign that you are God's and you belong to him. It's a visual way to confirm that. So toward what or whom then is our witness being directed? Well, the possibility exists that plenty of churches may not grasp the significant meaning of biblical worship. And I'll tell you this, I'll admit this to you. As a pastor, I admittedly consider how outside guests perceive what we do in our services. And you say, well, you shouldn't, bless God. Well, I do. I do think, uh, which is part of the reason uh, we have a welcome team. Our first, our first impressions team. When people come in on Sundays, the reason they're there is, is because of how people will perceive Eastside Baptist Church. And, and we might say, we, we don't think about what other people think. We do everything we do for the Lord. No, but, but we also have to remember that everything we do is a testimony. And everything we do makes a statement. So when people walk in and there's, and there's a, a, a crowd of smiling people welcoming you like a gauntlet sometimes. You know, I'd rather people say, man, this is just too much. Than people say, nobody greeted me when I walked in the door. You know, so I think about, I consider, uh, and now it doesn't necessarily determine all that we do. But I think about it. For instance, we want our building to look clean when guests visit. It makes a statement about how we minister in the same when you say, well, we shouldn't be so concerned about what people think. Well, if you're going to have guests over to your house, do you ever stop to clean up before they get there? Well, maybe you should then if you don't. <laughs> there, by the way, there are a few things more intense than the hour before the guests arrive, especially if you have children, okay? No, it makes a statement about how we minister if people walk into our property and it's clean. And I can't, I, very rarely do I walk from my, my, my vehicle into the building without picking something up out of the parking lot. Even if it's you, you blasted blasphemers, even if it's your gum that you keep spitting onto our parking lot, I will hold your gum and throw it away. And those of you that are doing that, God knows. Okay, so... <laughs> you know, we want our parking lot to be free from trash and clutter. We want the lights to work and don't look up. We, we want the temperature because we, I can't reach a couple of these. So 
We want the lights to work. We want to do things deliberately. We want, we want the temperature to be comfortable. And you say, well, you're doing a terrible job at that. I know. We're trying. We want to do things with excellence because it makes a statement about our view of the one we serve. And we want that to be a testimony to our guests. But when we consider, though, the act of biblical worship, we might think people are going to think it's strange. People are going to think it's weird because it's not normal for Americans to practice worship, to bow, and, and, and it is different. You know, when you come into my home, um, I'll shake your hand, but I won't get down on one knee. Or, you know, in those Eastern cultures, you know, you're bowing to people out of respect. We don't do that, but, but I believe that's why it could even have that much more of an impact if people come to our services and see that happening. I believe it could have an opposite effect, that people aren't thinking that's weird. People might be thinking, well, they really think a lot of their God. You know, where else might they see that kind of adoration expressed, especially in our culture? If not found in the place where the God of the universe meets with his people, then where? No form of worship seen elsewhere should equal or excel that which is to be directed toward a holy God. And if God is our audience when we gather together, then what better way could we express that he is our focus and he is our reason for, reason for assembling than worship? Worship does two things. It identifies the one true God, but it also identifies his true worshipers. Bowing separates the sovereign from the servant. And I understand that there would be reluctance to bow. And I even sense that sometimes when I encourage people to bow on Wednesday nights or even during men's prayer meeting on Sunday mornings. And as a side note, I'm not talking about um, those that might have physical limitations. Okay? That is completely understandable. Um, if, if, if you can't you know, bow on your knees, if that's a difficult thing for you to do, I completely understand that. And I would never ask someone to do something they're physically unable or uncomfortable doing. Okay, that's not the point I'm making. I'm talking about the reluctance that we have as Americans to bow. A case in point at invitation. Um, do, do you, I don't know if you feel this. I feel this. It, it's, it's different. It feels different for me when, a, some, when someone preaches a message and I'm sitting here. When I, I think about it when I bow uh, right here at the altar. I think, okay, I'm going to bow in front of all these people. And maybe that's the reason some don't respond to invitation. I, I understand the hesitation. But our hesitation should never uh, supersede what might be expected of God's people. And we've got to get over the hesitations and be willing to submit to the Bible definition of worship. It could be embarrassing. I know there is reluctance. It does feel strange. Um, and, but the question is, has society so shaped our thinking that we would rather bow to cultural expectations than to the God who created us and died for us and delivered us? So what does our witness say about us when we are reluctant to bow? And what does it say to the lost world about our thoughts of God? Brother Hardy, one of the best illustrations in the whole book, uh, in my opinion, he uses this hypothetical. He says, let us suppose the earth is visited by aliens from another planet. I can hear him say aliens, the way he says aliens. I can just imagine it. 
If they could visit our world, they would be intelligent. Let's, let's assume they've read our literature. They have learned about, enough about humans to know we're religious and we believe in a higher power. So these aliens then further assume, uh, maybe we'll further assume that they've acquainted themselves with our theological jargon, which would give them an understanding of worship. So they know that the original words mean to bow before their sovereign, their king. And consequently, they visit a Baptist church. Let's say they visit an Eastside Baptist church on Sunday morning during the prescribed time for worship. And whether they peer through the window or they have some, some kind of visible access another way, they watch to see the church members express their worth, the worth of their sovereign. Their next stop... And, and I'm not saying this um, in any way demeaning anything. I'm saying um, his, the illustration he uses, and it makes the point, their next stop is an Islamic mosque. Based on the action of the subjects, both in a Baptist church and in a mosque, which do you think they would decide serves a real sovereign? If bowing indicates a sovereign, I think we can assume the conclusion they would come to. Kneeling always points to a sovereign. And our worship is one of the most genuine forms of the declaration of God's greatness and our utter dependence on him for everything. It separates him from his creation and it declaring that all are subservient to him. And by bowing, we worship. And by our worship, we witness. We make a statement to others. Listen, there's never been a more important time for a witness to bro- boldly proclaim, there's a God and I'm not him. I mean, in this culture, everybody has a God complex. Everyone has their truth. Everyone says, this is my truth and you can't deny it and you can't speak against it. And they sit on the throne of their own lives, their lives. And God, a God complex can be found everywhere. And no one disputes what I believe or they get canceled. We live in a Romans 1 culture, don't we? There's plenty of evidence for God, but, but our culture denies it and glorifies him not as God and replaces him with lesser idols you say okay but what kind of impact can uh, can we have turn over to psalm 126 what kind of impact can we have if we make a big deal about god well this is a verse when i was a kid or a passage when i was a kid the first one i ever memorized i was just a couple years old my parents have a recording of me quoting psalm 126 i'm not even sure i knew what it meant but i could say the words And they still stay with me even today. Psalm 126, look at at the, I'm just going to read the whole thing. And then we'll go back and I want you to notice one point here. When we make a big deal of God, what happens? When the Lord, verse, verse 1, Psalm 126, When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. I mean, when when he released us and freed us, it was like a dream come true. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongues with singing. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again with rejoicing bringing his sheaves 
with him. I mean, what a great psalm. And yet the part that stood out to me is I thought, how, how is our impact as worshiping witnesses? What difference does it make for me to make a big deal of my sovereign? For me to make much of my king, what difference does it make? Well, just notice again the first two verses. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth, when God did great things, then was our mouth filled with laughter. I was, there was joy. It says our tongue was filled with singing. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for them. Do you see the... See what the psalmist is saying here? When you make a big deal about God, those that may not even know your God are going to say, the Lord really has done great things for them. For them to respond that way, for them to make much of God, for them to lift him up, for them to be, I mean, they were captives and now they're laughing. They were slaves. Now they have joy. I mean, think about it, where they were and now where they are and they're making a big deal about their God and the the heathen, the heathen, their testimony is the Lord hath done great things for them. We cannot deny it that God has done great things for those people. And listen, that is why I'm preaching a a series on worship. Because it's it's not just about fulfilling you a little bit more. It's not just about adding some kind of liturgy to our our services. It is, number one, first and foremost, giving God what he deserves in worship. That's first. But second, I don't think we recognize the impact it could have that when worshiping witnesses worship the right way and someone comes in from the outside and they're trying to figure out, is this real or not? It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 14. When I've, I've preached this before and when we worship in a way that other people come in, they see us singing with excellence and they see our hearts poured into it and they know that this is real and genuine and they're looking even at teenagers. They're looking at some young person, a 14 or 15 year old boy or a girl right here and they're thinking, well, you know, most teenagers just come and stand there during the services. Man, those teenagers are holding hymnals and they're singing like they really believe it. You know what the Bible says? there must be something real about this and by the testimony of the people they that that those that come in by the testimony of the ones that they watch the bible says god must be real and then there the result is they bow down and now they're worshiping because if people will have a testimony like that and it's that sincere and that real and by the way let me just say everything you do in this room on Sundays and Wednesdays, a guest may be watching and you might be the difference between whether or not they think, okay, God must be real or not. That's the impact you can have. And that's the point tonight is that worship is more than practice. Worship is witness. It's a testimony to the God that we serve. And when we worship, it's making a big deal about God. In his sovereignty and what he has done for us. And there are a few ways, listen, there are a lot of ways you can make a big deal about God. But few ways express his sovereignty as simply and more powerfully than bowing. When someone bows, 
those watching clearly know who the king is. And could it be that maybe you have taken the Lord's name, and I'm not saying you've done this purposely or deliberately, could it be though that you've taken the Lord's name without fully realizing what it means to worship him? It's possible. And that's why we need this thought tonight. We need to be worshiping witnesses. And, and there are many reasons to worship. Number one, God deserves it. But another consideration found in Psalm 126 is the effect it has on the heathen. And by that I mean that those come in that don't serve our God. It can, you can have a witnessing effect on someone who enters this congregation by the way that you worship, by your willingness to worship. Listen, there's more at stake than just, I'm uncomfortable. There's more at stake than I just feel embarrassed. And there's more at stake than, you know, I can pray right here at my seat standing up. You know what's at stake? What's at stake is someone watching and making, coming to a conclusion about your God based on the way that you worship in a service. It could make a big difference. Just something to consider tonight. Let's stand together as we have a verse of invitation and submit ourselves then to this truth the Holy Spirit and be willing to subject our desires, our preferences, our preconceived ideas, not just to our emotions and not just to our preferences, but to the word of God. Because really, that is the only sure thing that we have to make decisions based off of. So let's just submit ourselves to that tonight. And, and again, I'm not even really sure how to apply this, um, except that I want you to understand the responsibility you have to be a witness in worship. It is not just the pastor's job. It is not just the music director's job or the choir's job. Every person that represents Eastside sits in a pew. You have a responsibility every single service. You can be a worshiping witness. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us tonight. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.